Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. We're going to look today in Psalms, in the Psalms, and I want to begin with the 57th Psalm. So that's where we're going to start. Now, most of the Psalms have what we call a superscription. That is uh, a title, maybe, but it's not, no, it's not a title. It's, it's some information that's usually presented in your Bible in a smaller font, but it's in the original text. It's not something to be sung or chanted or prayed with the psalm, it's instructions. Uh, maybe it gives us an attribution of the composer. Often it gives musical instruction. And sometimes it'll give a bit of historical background. This 57th psalm, the superscription is, For the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, a mitcom of David, when he fled from Saul to the cave. So, this is a psalm that is attributed to David. The context is when he was hiding from Saul. Remember that king Saul is the first king of Israel. But but then God rejects him from being king, and the prophet Samuel anoints David And so now there's a contender for the throne, and Saul's not happy with this, and he's trying to kill him, and all of that. A lot of of palace intrigues in these uh, royal stories in the Old Testament. And so David is hiding in a cave from Saul. That's the historical background. The tune for this psalm is, Do Not Destroy, which we know nothing about. We have have no idea what that is. That's just the tune for it. Yeah, do it to that tune, Do Not Destroy. And it's a mitcom, we're told. It's a mitcom. What is a mitcom? Anybody know what a mitcom is? Anybody? Um, no one knows. <laughs> mitcom is an ancient Hebrew word that we have no idea what it means. So for people that say, I believe every word of the Bible, well, good for you, but we don't even know what every word means. Mitcom. Well, since no one knows what a mitcom is, I'm going to give it my own meaning. <laughs> I'm just going to give my own meaning. It's an empty vessel. I'm going to fill it up and, and, and use it the way I want to use it. A mitcom, for my purposes, is a meditation from the mountains. I've been in the mountains. We, we went out there, first of all, to get our son married. And our son is married to a Sarah yeah, I know it's confusing because Aaron's married to a Sarah. Now Philip's married to a Sarah. It'll be an endless confusion for us, but a wonderful confusion. Because, uh, so Philip was married, and then Perry and I stayed out there for 10 days just because that's how we are, you know. And so I have been in the mountains, and the mountains seem to draw something out of me. It places me in a bit of a more contemplative state. And as I hiked in the mountains, I was meditating, and this is where this comes from. So I'm going to call this God and soul a mitcom. 
It's not really a sermon. It's a, it's a mitcom, which by now all scholars agree means a meditation from the mountains. Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. I cry to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who trample on me. God will send forth his steadfast love and faithfulness. This psalm was composed during a time of trouble that the poet describes as destroying storms. We live in such times. I mean, I think there might be a tendency for everyone at every moment to think we live in troubled times because that's just the way life can be. On the other hand, um, I do think the last several years we've been in a time of profound disruption in many arenas of life. I think we could all agree on that. Now, during a time of trouble, the psalmist directs his attention toward God and says, In you my soul takes refuge. So my meditation from the mountains, my mitcom is about tending to the well-being of your soul during challenging times. When there are troubling storms, you know, we have to take care of our soul. So let's get started on this meditation, and I guess the place to begin is to ask the question, what is the soul? I don't think there's a simple answer to this. You know, at one time I was around people who would always just quip, uh, mind, will, and emotions. That's what the soul is, as if they knew. I think that's uh, almost entirely unhelpful. I don't think that means much. What is the soul? Well, I think maybe we should start and, and look at how the soul is spoken of in God's creation of humankind. So I want to look at two verses from the two Genesis accounts of creation. There are two of them. The first one is Genesis 1, and it speaks of Elohim, God as creator. And then the second one, uh, the second chapter, speaks of Yahweh as the creator. And uh, these are two different names, Elohim and Yahweh, but they're complementary. And so we begin with Genesis 1.27. God created, that is Elohim, created Adam, Adam, humankind, that word just means man, is how it's often translated, or, but really it means humankind, as we'll see. God created Adam, humankind, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. So we go from the singular to the plural. Male and female, he created them. So in Genesis 1, Adam is really just the name for humankind, Male and female. And the unique thing is that they are created, we are created, in the image of God. Then in chapter 2, 
the Lord God, the Yahweh God, Lord in all caps is Yahweh, the Yahweh God formed Adam, humankind, from the dust of the Adama, the ground, the Adam from the Adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam, or humankind, became a living soul. There it is. There's the soul. That when God forms humankind out of the dust, because we, we have a connection with the earth, but that isn't all we are. We're not just animated material because God has breathed upon us out of His own Spirit so that we become a nephesh, a breathing thing, a soul. So what is the soul of a human being? Well, the soul is the human essence. I mean, the human soul is what it means to be human. To have a human soul is what makes us human. And the soul is a synthesis. It's a, it's a mixture. It's a coming together of the dust of the ground and the breath of God, or, the, or material matter and the spirit of the living God. So the soul connects us. With the soul, because we, are, because we have a soul, we have connection with both the earth. Do you feel connected to the earth? I think you should. I think it's unfortunate when people feel like we're sort of like strangers here. No, we're connected to this. That's why it's good to be out in nature, because we, we have a connection with that. But we're also connected with God, because God breathes upon us, and, and we wake up, and we have this soul, the human soul. So we are both material and spiritual. We connect heaven and earth and our own soul. And the, the human soul is capable of communion with God. That you can hear God speak to you. And you can speak to God. Now I would not say that only humans have a soul. Perhaps all living things, perhaps all created things have some kind of soul. There are church fathers that thought that way, and I'm inclined a little bit in that direction. What I would say, though, is that the human soul uniquely bears the image of God. That the human soul, the human being, because when we say soul, we're actually talking about both the spirit and the material part of us, so, so that what we are is a soul. Um, we are to uniquely reflect the image of God. Now, now, something's gone wrong because the idea was that all of creation could look upon human beings and go, oh, that's what God is like. Something went wrong. Now, the spoiler is that Jesus puts it back on track. I jumped all the way to the end there. Jesus puts it back on track. Jesus is... The revelation of both who God is and what a human being is to be. When we look at Jesus, we not only see what God is like, we also see what you and I are to be like. All right? And so we, we are to bear the image of God uniquely within creation. And also the human soul is uniquely suited for cognizant communion with God. In some way, I assume that the birds and the beasts and the fish of the sea have some kind of communion with God, but I don't know at what cognizant level it is. You and I uniquely can 
be intentionally aware of God and God's presence and can communicate with God, hear from God and speak to God, which I think indicates that prayer is probably the highest and most human thing you can do, is to pray. All right, enough of that. Uh, I'm sure that we're all aware of the existence of the soul, even if it isn't necessarily easy to define what it is. We are aware of its existence. I mean, only, only materialist atheists play at denying the existence of the soul, and that's not you. Uh, the real question is, how do we tend to the well-being of our soul? And that is my mountain meditation. Now, your soul, in one sense your soul is you, but I, I want to kind of focus on it like we're going to just set it there and look at it. Your soul is God's great gift to you. You are a spiritual material being who can experience God. You're not just a spiritual being, and, and it isn't like you just want to get rid of this someday, this body. It, it needs to be resurrected, revamped, reworked. It needs to become a spirit-animated body. But, you know, you, you, you are a material being, and you should be, and that's, your, your goal is not to become a ghost. But you're not just a body either. You are a body that God has breathed upon, so you are a spiritual material being that can experience God. And the soul that maintains a connection with God maintains health. And I think a healthy soul is chiefly characterized. This is how you evaluate the health of a soul. A healthy soul is chiefly characterized by peace and joy. Peace and joy. I mean, that's, that's how you take the temperature of a soul. Is, it, is my soul at peace? Is, and not just at peace, but is, it, is, there, is there a joy? Now, that doesn't mean, I mean, we, we all go through times of grief. We suffer loss and we grieve and we sorrow. But in a healthy soul, there remains a reservoir of peace and joy that we can draw upon. You know, when Perry and I went through such a difficult time, well, it's been a long time ago now, 17 years ago. Was that, was that long? 2004 and, you know, those days. and it, We were experiencing great loss and it was painful for us. But by the grace of God, that was the same time that I was learning how to pray well. And so I was able to go through that time experiencing grief and pain, but without lasting damage to my soul being done. Because I was learning how to maintain intentionally my soul's connection with the living God. But here's the thing, maintaining a healthy soul is a particular challenge in our age, here in Western society. Because our zeitgeist, our spirit of the age, is secular. I'm not using this word in culture war terms like, you know, the solution to the problem is to put up the Ten Commandments in every courthouse. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, in a secular age, there is just this general ethos, a presumption within the culture that God is either non-existent or unnecessary or unknowable, or at very least, peripheral. And that might be the best way. Because most people in a secular age aren't necessarily atheists. 
they just, they just see God as sort of pushed to the irrelevant edges of their life. And if you, you want to go find God, you know, then you go out on the edge somewhere and find God, perhaps. But that God within our entire society is no longer the central organizing principle of life itself. And so that's, that's, that's the world that we were born into. And the problem of marginalizing God is that, well, hold on a minute, God is the very life source of the soul. Okay. So God is, is not completely been uh, banished, but God has been pushed, as it were, in society. And, and by the way, you cannot solve this problem politically, so get rid of that notion. God has been pushed to the margins. And we can maybe go find God now and then, but generally we live our life as if there was no God. But the problem is, God is the very life source of the soul. And so then what begins to happen is that the soul begins to be unhealthy, dry. It begins to, uh, I would just say, I mean, the secular attempt to live life separate from the experience of God is disastrous for the soul. It leads to the withering of the soul, and the soul becomes dry and parched. That would be a way of describing it. We'll look at an, another psalm. It's right here in the neighborhood, just to turn the page. Psalm 63 Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. A secular age, that is a culture that pushes God to the periphery, creates a vast spiritual desert. American culture is not conducive to the flourishing of the soul. I know there's lots of churches and all that, but I'm just saying the culture that you and I were raised in is more like a vast spiritual desert. It is not conducive to the health and well-being of our soul. Now, lost in this spiritual desert, everyone, every single person, everyone experiences the soul's thirst for God. It's experienced, I think, primarily as, as a inner discontent. Kind of a sense that something's not quite right. Things are going well, maybe, in my life, but there's, I'm not completely at ease. There's something missing. There's an inner discontent. But I think most have no idea that their deep inner discontent is really a longing for God. I think most people then would resist that. That's why I'm not a therapist. I'm a pastor. And I'm going to tell you that what you're longing for, what you're thirsty for, is God. And the psalmist, though, the psalmist is, you know, we are living in a, in a, in a secular wilderness. The psalmist was it. I mean, secularism is, is modern. The psalmist knows what to do about it. Verse 2, the psalmist says, 
so I have looked upon you, or most translations say for you, so let's read it that way. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So the psalmist looks for God in the sanctuary, but really that word is just the word holy. A lot of translations translate there, but it's just the word holy, Kadesh. It's a very common word. It's hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Every time you see the word holy, it's this word. So what the psalmist is really saying, I'm thirsty, my soul's thirsty. I feel like my soul's in a desert, but I'm going to look for God in the holy. Again, secularism insists, this may be the very philosophical essence of secularism. It insists that nothing is truly, ontologically, really holy. That it's just a construct that we place upon it. And that we live in a world where the holy is, is absent. But this is false. <laughs> and you need to feel the falsity of that assertion that this world is devoid of the holy. That is not true. That is a construct. There is the holy. The Lord's Day is holy. It's not just the second Saturday. Some think it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday. No, it's the Lord's Day. It's the day that Christ was raised. We approach it different. It's ho- holy, holy doesn't mean good, although ho- that which is holy is good, but it doesn't mean good. It means set apart, distinct. It's a distinct day. And it's not the last day, it's the first day. I know we think of it as the weekend, but, but actually, for, us, for those of us who believe, this is the day that we remember that Christ is raised, and now we're going to live the rest of this week in the light of the resurrected Christ. Not just the second Saturday, it's Sunday, it's Lord's Day. Church is holy. I could get people to argue with me. I'm not here to argue. The church is holy. Because what is like the church? There's nothing like a church. What do you you compare? I mean, here we are, we've gathered, we've gathered. In person, online, we've gathered. And what draws us together? It's not common interest. Some of you like golf. I don't like golf. You know, it's not common interest that draws us together. Um, certainly not a common politics. We, we've not gathered in the name of entertainment. Here we are now, entertain us. No. We've gathered in the name of Jesus. Yeah, we are a Jesus church. And we've gathered around Jesus. And what happens when we gather intentionally in the name of Jesus around Jesus? What happens? Jesus is there. It's a holy place. There's, there's, there's Walmart and there's a church and they're not the same. The scriptures are holy. The sacraments are holy. Prayer is holy. Even things like crosses. Crucifixes. During the, during the scripture reading, I noticed that they had a lot of crucifixes and crosses being displayed. Those are holy. 
icons. I mean, these aren't just pretty decorations up here. These are holy works that tell of the holy events in the life of Jesus. Baptism, transfiguration, crucifixion, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, resurrection. They're things that are holy. And I need the holy. I need the holy. I need to bathe my soul in God. That's how I, if, if I, if I, my soul will dry out pretty quick. If I don't intentionally, deliberately bathe my soul in God. If I don't drink deeply from the well of God. If I don't feed upon God. We're going to feed upon God here in a little bit. That's holy. Verse 5, the psalmist says, My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. Well, as surely as I need to tend to my physical well-being day by day, food, drink, hygiene, exercise, I also need to tend to the well-being of my soul day by day. You know, I mean, how long can you go without tending to the well-being of your body, your physical being? You know, if you just neglect food, drink, hygiene, exercise, you know, it's not long and things are going to go wrong. Why do you think it's any different with the soul? The Apostle Paul speaks of our inner self being renewed day by day, but we have to approach that. Now, I'm, this, is, this is where this, this mitcom could go wrong. Because all of a sudden it could sound like I'm going to start scolding you, and I'm going to be a school marm, wagging my finger. So you got to pray and read the Bible. That's not what I'm doing. This is not about accruing merit. I mean, I'm in the habit of having, I eat about three times a day. And I don't do so because somebody's making me. It's I get hungry. <laughs> and I need to recognize that when things are off in my soul, I need to properly diagnose or discern what, oh, I'm hungry for God. I'm thirsty for God. I'm beginning to be a little dry. I need to immerse my soul in God. And this is the role of healthy religion. Don't buy the modern lie that religion is all bad. You didn't get that from Jesus. You got that from Nietzsche, so stop it. In, in modernity, what has happened is we have conflated religious hypocrisy and religious practice into the same thing. No, they're not the same thing at all. Jesus was a prophet who challenged religious hypocrisy with great zeal, but was a thoroughly religious man. I mean, I mean, Jesus, you know, attended synagogue and he had a religious calendar and a religious diet and he had religious prayers and religious practices that formed his life. So you can't say that Jesus wasn't religious. I mean, he was, he's, the, he's the epitome of good religion. And now our religion is formed around Christ and it's intended, the role of religion is to form us in our soul, 
in Christ's likeness. This is the role of healthy religion. And religion is certainly, religion is certainly not, Christian religion is not about earning God's love. You are eternally loved by God. We were singing it this morning. He's for you. He's for you. He's for you. He's never not for you. God has one single disposition towards you that is eternal and unchanging, and that is love. Christian religion is not about earning God's love. Rather, it's about Christian religion provides the practices that keep our soul intentionally immersed in God. I mean, if I say, you need to keep your soul immersed in God, you'll go, yeah. But there's actually ways to do it. We don't, you don't have to be left on your own to figure it out. I mean, you can't invent a healthy, soul-restoring religion on your own. You just can't. I mean, you might cobble something together, but it won't do you much good. Do-it-yourself spirituality is too individualistic, too unrooted, too thin to do much good. The best Christian spiritual practices have been developed over centuries by our wisest saints. And it's passed on to us through healthy religion. So I need the scriptures, I need the creeds, I need the prayers, I need the practices that have been passed down. But most of all, I need Jesus. A spirituality apart from Jesus is not something I'm interested in. If that's your deal, knock yourself out. But I'm not interested in it. I just, I just want to go on record. BZ is not interested in a spirituality apart from Jesus. Now, there are lots of wisdom traditions, and the great world religions, the best world religions, carry that wisdom tradition because people have been trying to be human for a long time. And we figure out certain things that help. And I'm all for it. But when the eternal Logos joined creation to heal creation, that Logos was given a name, Jesus. For God so loved the world. And see, there's, Jesus is unique. That's what I'm getting at. Jesus is unique. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique begotten son to save the world. Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the forgiveness of God. Jesus is the one who goes down into death and rescues us from death. You cannot grow beyond Jesus. I've seen some people think that that's what they're going to do now. They start off with Jesus and now, now I'm going to grow beyond Jesus. Dear one, that's called falling away. That's not growing. Well, what, what has happened is people have, have, especially modern people, especially modern people, modern people think they're highly individualistic. Well, they're just following the crowd who all are marching around going, I'm an individualist. <laughs> modern people can, can be offended by what is known as the scandal of particularity. I want to help unpack that. I got to, well, I've preached 30 minutes, but I'll go a little longer because I want to. 
I got a new book coming out. It comes out uh, November 9th. I like that because that's 47 years after my life-changing encounter of Jesus when I was 15. It comes out on that date. I mean, it's, we didn't plan it that way, but I recognized it as that day. And I want to read to you a little bit. This is whenever things on fire. This is, this is an advanced reader copy. Uncorrected proof, not for sale, so sorry. But it'll come out November 9th. I'm going to read a couple of pages. I know that's maybe not the best. Again, this isn't a sermon. This is a mitcom. <laughs> and I want, I want to read two pages. It'll take me four minutes or so. The reason I want to read it is that well, you say you should just stand up here and preach it. You're right. I should. But I worked so hard on getting the words just right out. I, I can't get as accurate in saying what I want to say by being somewhat improvisational. And I didn't take time to memorize two whole pages, so here it is. The whole point, this is from the last chapter, so I mean, there's a whole lot that's been going on. And this gets published 47 years after I first met Jesus, so this was 47 years in the making. The whole point of confessing the deity of Christ is to know what God is like. We must not make the mistake of saying, I already know what God is like, and now I know that Jesus is that. No, that's backward. We don't know what God is like. Jesus alone knows the Father and reveals the Father. The whole point of confessing the deity of Christ is to know what God is like. God is like Jesus. Every other idea about God, no matter where it comes from, must bow to the revelation of God as seen in Jesus. The Bible is not the perfect revelation of who God is. Jesus is. What the Bible does best is to faithfully point us to Jesus as the revelation of God. To say, I believe in God, is often an enormous empty signifier because God can be an endlessly malleable concept. We believe in God ambiguously and vaguely, mostly as philosophical concept and psychological projection. But when we believe in Jesus as the perfect revelation of God, we begin to encounter God in specificity and in particularity. The writer of Hebrews is quite explicit about this when he says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being. This audacious claim has led some to stumble at the scandal of particularity. More than a few modern minds are offended at the idea that the logos of God became particular flesh in a particular place at a particular moment in history. The idea that God entered history and joined the human race uniquely through Jesus of Nazareth with all his particularities offends the more pantheistic and perhaps more palatable idea that God is all things. But this offense, if it is an offense, is an inherent aspect of Christianity. I've heard some from the outer edges of progressive Christianity blithely chirp, Christ is everything. That's pious-sounding nonsense. Christ is not cancer cells. Christ is not nuclear bombs. Christ is not my cat. Christ is not me. Christians confess that all things will be assumed into and healed by Christ, but this happens through the scandal of particularity, not apart from it. 
In his great treatise on the resurrection, the Apostle Paul sets forth a sweeping eschatological vision that culminates with God being all and in all. The glorious crescendo of Christian eschatology is the abolition of death and the arrival of a healed cosmos in which God is all and in all. But this redemptive end is accomplished through the particularity of Christ. And I, for one, am not offended by the scandal of particularity. I'm particularly partial to Jesus Christ. In response to the eschatology set forth in the New Testament, I am universal in my robust hope that all creation will be redeemed, and I'm particular in my confession that this redemption is accomplished in Christ. Our blessed hope is that the Father's house will finally subsume the entire cosmos. That the universe itself will become the house of love. But the particular good news in our present moment is that Jesus invites us to live in the house of love now. Stand up with me. I want us to just take a moment here and just... Just bring our soul to Jesus. Why? Because he says, come to me, all you who your soul is weary. Your soul is pressed down by heavy burdens. Come to me. I'll give you rest for your soul. I'll give you I'll give you well-being in your soul. Just, let's just, just close your eyes and just come to Jesus. Just turn your thoughts toward him. He hears you. And just say, Jesus, I come to you. Jesus, I need, I need your grace. Jesus, as, as you touched so many people in your ministry, the leper, the blind, the lame, even the dead, and they were healed and they were raised. We, we ask that you would touch our soul. Touch our soul where it's crippled. Touch our soul where it's weary. Touch our soul where it's dry. Touch our soul where it's parched. Jesus, we don't want to try to live life without you. We want to live life with you, in you, through you, by you. Jesus, we draw near to you. And the promise is that you'll draw near to us. And now we're going to come to have what I think is the most direct encounter with Christ. That is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. You know, when Jesus said that, that was our gospel. Do you know a bunch of people got offended and left? Almost everybody did. They said, ah, that's crazy talk. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. And Jesus didn't say, oh, no, I'm just using a metaphor here. Well, they say, oh, okay, that's good. We'll, we'll keep hanging with you. And he says, no, I'm telling you, unless you eat and chew. Actually, that's the word, chew my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life in you. And most of them all left. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And Jesus, because Jesus was doing really good. His, his church growth program was, whew. I mean, just the day before, there had been 5,000 men in church, not counting women and kids. That's that's done good. And the next day, he's back down to 12. And he says to Peter, well, I I suppose you guys are going to want to leave too. And he says, Peter says, where are we going to go? 
You alone have the words of life. Woo. Sometimes Peter gets it wrong, but sometimes he gets it right. Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So we're going to come to Jesus and eat his flesh and drink his blood and have his life in us. And we're going to prepare ourselves right now by confessing our faith and confessing our sins. Join with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You have tried to follow and you have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here the body of Christ broken for you the blood of Christ shed for you